Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. And today's teaching comes from Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. So if you want to read along, it's on the on the screen, if not, you can feel free to just listen to me. <laughs> Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go, go before him on the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by the time was long gone from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, He had came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is what you command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out on the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out, out, out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Today. Um, some lament of uh, the dark realities of our world, the, of course, the terrible tragedy of the shooting this past week and the shooting in Buffalo two weeks ago. Um, I don't know about you, um, but um, maybe you think about what that feeling or emotion is this morning, like numbness or anger or fear or a sense of hopelessness. Um, as a father, I, you know, thinking about sending my daughter to school in the fall, um, it just hit me like, I just questioned that even in thinking about um, our world. I was watching a, um, a piece um, with Anderson Cooper. He was interviewing a father who had lost his daughter, and um, the father is clinging to a picture of his daughter, and he had to ask the question, how could you shoot my baby? And I just, I just froze. I was like, I, this is not okay. Like, this is not okay. And um, as a community, I don't, I don't want us to grow numb and emotionless, you know, when things like this um, happen, and so um, I, I want to um, be able to say that's not okay and live in that space where we can say it's not okay, and so I do want to pray, um, but I also just want to say that followers of Jesus are called to practice a nonviolent and peaceful lifestyle, and so we actually need a proactive theology paired um, with our prayers, a practice of peace and justice, and what I mean is that we should be people that are giving energy and resources to address the causes of violence in our culture, and in particular, guns are a part of this equation. 
And so obsession with firearms as a means of power should be denounced and spoken against. This is not okay. And um, we've become, this has become normalized. And so there are things that we as a community can do. I, you know, I just started reading a handful of books this week because I feel behind in understanding um, the culture's obsessions with guns, but thinking about universal background checks and um, banning high capacity magazines, all these things should actually be discussed and talked about. And I want you guys um, to be thinking about these things. And, um, and prayer, yes, we should pray. And grieve and mourn, yes, we should do these things, but action, yes, as well. And so we don't try to live in the dichotomies of this world where we do one or the other, but we actually get to do um, both. And so, wherever you are this morning, let's bring that to prayer to our God who listens and answers our prayers, all right? And part of this will be a, uh, a prayer of lament. And so, Father, um, it's clear that we need you, and we mourn the loss of life of those that have been created in your image. And simultaneously, God, um, we are a people that look to you and we ask, how long, O Lord? How long before senseless shootings cease? How long before our prayers become policies? How long, God? And we are a believing people, and so we believe that your presence can comfort those in need. And so I pray this morning that your spirit would be found evident in the families in Buffalo and Texas, that you would give them comfort and understanding in a dark season, that you would surround them with people that would allow them to mourn and to grieve and to lament. And so, Father, as a community, as we come um, to sit under your word, um, we pray and we ask for you to be in our midst, and we do, we grieve, and we have lots of questions, and we're dealing with a lot, and so we bring that. And would you call us to be people of action, who sign petitions, who march, who think about the ways that your kingdom can come to be in our city as it is in heaven. And so God, be in our midst. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So um, I don't want to ignore it today. I want to bring all of that right into the scripture because I actually think that um, there's a context that we live in and the Bible is a context and it's a real context. It's actually reality. So I want to begin with this um, quote here from Eugene Peterson. He says, the Bible is a narrative, and the way the Bible is written is every bit as important as what is written. It is a capacious, meaning grand story, which pulls us into the plot and shows our place in its development from beginning to end. And so it's a grand story pulling us into its plot, and it's showing us our place in its development from beginning to end. I believe in the Christian scriptures for life and practice. So from the beginning to end, uh, the, the text is drawing us into its story, and the story has chapters. And if you've been around here, you've seen these chapters that we've talked about. It's creation, and then uh, arrows down, down to decreation, into recreation. And so um, the Bible has chapters. This is a, a way of thinking about the Bible. And this helps us understand our world. This is actually very helpful, okay? So let me walk through... Uh, part of this, and then um, I'll help you understand why this answers um, the questions that you have. And so, creation. The Bible opens in the garden with a story of creation. The main character, God, it says that he creates ex nihilo, which means he creates out of nothing, all right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, Contrary to popular belief, Genesis 1 and 2 is not a science textbook, but rather it's an unfolding drama about the nature and the character of God. And it's really important to read Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, you can't actually read it enough, 
because what you actually get is God's intention for humanity. And again, this is why I said the, the context is important to frame up. Creation is God's intention. The garden is God's intention for humanity, right? Um, you see in Genesis 1 uh, and 2 the repeated phrase, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, meaning that humanity was in perfect shalom with God, perfect peace, wholeness, everything was in right relationship with God and with each other. And I just want that to sink in this morning. This is God's intention, shalom, goodness, peace between God and his people. Human flourishing is God's intention. And so um, in the garden, there's no COVID, there's no anxiety or depression, there's no racism, no trauma, no broken relationships, there's no shootings, right? There's no guns in the garden, right? It wouldn't make any sense. No guns in the garden because none of these things are God's intention. And the creator God actually designed us for a life of perfection and goodness and flourishing. And we should reflect and dwell on that because that's what we know in the deepest parts of who we are. That's what we know in the deepest parts of who we are, that we actually long for the elements of the kingdom of God. We may shun the king, but we long for the elements of the kingdom because they are not a part of God's intention. And yet, because of the fall, this act of decreation that we arrowed down to, we know that God gives us a measure of freedom, right? We're, we have free will. We don't stay in creation, but we actually move into decreation. This is the biblical narrative, Genesis chapter 3 the fall. Sin enters humanity, disobedience against God. And if God created everything for good, we know there's actually a dissonance between the ideas, right? We, we know the tension, like God did create for good, but we don't always feel good, right? We don't always feel his goodness about us. And in the Christian scriptures, really early on, in fact, sin enters the story and things begin to spiral out of control. If you read Genesis, it's a pretty wild book. You have murder, family division, shame, perverse sexuality, drunkenness, and not just in a, um, like a moral behavioral sense, but actually like in a family systems trauma sense, like it's just trickling down through the whole book. Augustine actually um, described sin as disordered loves, and so you're actually um, putting your priorities wrong, right? And that's, that's what sin fundamentally is, is loving things or other people above God, and whenever we do that, it's actually sin. And so that's the story that we move from, from creation to decreation, okay? And this is where I said, it, 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 I want to set today in context. We long for Genesis 1 and 2, right? The justice-oriented side of who we are as a people says, this is not right. And the reason we say it's not right, it's because we long for what is right, because we were made for creation, but we live in the midst of decreation. And as much as I hate this, it's actually what helps us understand the tension and the brokenness of our culture that, that we live in. And so what we're actually longing for because we live in this measure of decreation is we're looking for recreation, right? This is the narrative. The Bible doesn't end in Genesis chapter 3, but it's an unfolding drama that actually ends with hope, right? Jesus came calling people to follow him, um, teaching, exercising demons, healing the sick, preaching, having compassion on the socially outcast. And what is he doing all the while? He's recreating, right? And the unfolding drama of the church even today, even though it fails to reach recreation, staying in decreation, the unfolding drama of the church is that we should be people of recreation, bringing about life and restoration when there is death. And that's the, the, the passage in Revelation chapter 21 that we long for, uh, a time when the, he the new heavens and the new earth will come, and we long for newness, right? And so hopefully what this does is it, it helps frame how we feel 
in a lot of ways. It helps frame what we believe and the tension about what we should do because actually where we live is decreation, but we get to see, and I should have put this arrow back in, but we see elements of recreation in the midst of our decreation. And it's beautiful, right? Like you feel it. There's some days we just wake up and you're just like, it's a new day, there's hope, I know. Or you go to work and you say, I actually get to join God in creation. Right? I'm a co-creator with God in my work. I get to bring about creation in the midst of decreation. And so this frames our spiritual journey. It frames actually our biggest questions about life. Why are we here? What does it all mean? Why is there actually snippets or bits of beauty and goodness? And the answer is creation, right? God actually created us to be creative people. We're here to worship God as he reveals himself in the person of Jesus. That's what we were created for. Okay, well, what's gone wrong? Why are things falling apart? Why, isn't things always, why aren't things always good? It's decreation. It's sin, right? When we naturally have this propensity to go against God and his ways, what can make things right again? Recreation, right? These are our questions, and they actually come down more fundamentally oftentimes, which is like, what am I doing with my life? Should I move? I can't figure this thing out, right? I'm kind of purposeless at work. Should I delete the apps? Should I, should I add the apps? Like, I got to figure out this relationship stuff, right? This is, the, this is the tension that we're in. But if you dig down a few layers, these are our questions. And the Gospels are actually an attempt to answer the question. So one of my favorite uh, theologians as of late is a guy named Klein Snodgrass, and he says this, Christianity inserts a new option for dealing with time. One based on the pouring out of the Spirit, the coming of the kingdom of God, and the resurrection. And listen to this. Jesus and the early church taught that the future has invaded the present and determines how life is lived in the present. Christians live in the presence of the future. So it's kind of confusing, but what he's saying is, as Christians live in the presence of his future, we actually have hope. We grieve, but we don't grieve with pe as people without hope because we know the end of the story. The end of the story is poking through in the here and in the now. And so this is why I want to show you is important today through our text. We'll keep that, um, that framing there because it's going to help us understand um, the text. And so we're actually still in our Mark series, but we're going to teach today from Matthew's account of Jesus walking on the water. It's the same passage with a slight variation. And so um, just to zoom out a little bit, there are four sort of biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke primarily um, mostly called the synoptic Gospels because they're um, mostly the same. Um, with most scholars actually believing that Mark is the first gospel to be written, this is why we've been studying um, Mark's gospel is because it's uh, source material. How do we get a vision of real and raw Jesus? We go to the source documents to figure out what that looks like. And so most believe that Mark's gospel was maybe written in 60 AD. It was written by John Mark, who was a um, scribe for the disciple Peter. Now, that, I tell you all that today because it becomes important because in Mark's account, which we didn't read today, we find Jesus walking on water, but no Peter. In Matthew's account, we find Jesus walking on water, but we find Peter also stepping out. And you'd say, well, Russell, you just said Mark is source material from Peter, this eyewitness. Why isn't Peter included? And scholars actually think that um, Peter is not added. Um, some believe because he was embarrassed um, that he began to sink in the water, and so he didn't want to be included in the narrative. Others believe that Peter told Mark not to include it because he was humble. 
He said, the focus and the, the point of the story is Jesus walking on water, not me, and so take me out. And so I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's just interesting to me. But this is where we begin in Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 22. And if you want to follow along um, on your phone or whatever, I, I think that would be a great thing. So some of it will be on the slides. Verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And so the word uh, made there is like to force or, or to um, compel or to urge. Often it's used to tell someone to do something against their will. Jesus is like, this is a command. You're going to do this. After he dismissed them, uh, it says Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. And this should not be understated. Jesus has a regular rhythm of getting away to have a secure attachment to his father in prayer. Um, this is maybe a silly kind of bridge, but I don't know if you've ever been um, around someone who is uh, heavily addicted to cigarettes, but you're just hanging out with them, and then they just disappear. And you're like, where do they go? They come back, and you say, where have you been? Like, what have you been doing? They're like, I just had to, you know, get a hit. This is what Jesus is like with prayer, all right? A silly, silly bridge, admittedly, but uh, Jesus, like, goes and gets little hits of prayer, I guess. He's got to disappear. So Jesus, he models this terrible bridge. I tried. <laughs> Jesus models this regular rhythm of escaping, right? Time set aside to just be in the presence, fuel for the journey. And I think, too, we don't think about prayer often like this, but prayer is a way of remembering who you are. Prayer is just a, a way of remembering exactly who you are. And when we read this, um, Jesus' affirmation, or God's affirmation to his son in, in the Gospels, what we actually find is Jesus is like very secure in who he is. And I think it's because he's constantly escaping to pray. What, what does he come back and say? He says, I and the Father are one. I only do what the Father tells me to do. He's like, everything I've, I'm, 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 I'm doing now is because I spent time praying. And so it goes on. It says in verse 23, when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And so Jesus is finishing up praying. He's on the shore. The disciples have now been sent out into the water. And it's sort of unclear about what time it is, but we need to understand because it actually matters for our story here today. In verse 23, it says, when evening came. And so I'm just going to give a rough estimate that um, Jesus sends his disciples out in the story at 6 p.m. And so he sent them out, and then they're a long ways off. And then what does it say? In the fourth watch of the night. And so the Romans divided um, the, the, um, the night into four three-hour watches between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. And so the fourth watch of the night is the last one. It's from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so... When evening came, they were sent out, I don't know, maybe 6 p.m. We'll just go with that as a rough estimate. And then in the fourth watch of the night, they're still rowing and Jesus walks up to them. What does it mean? They've been at it for like seven, eight, nine hours. They've been rowing against the wind. Um, the Sea of Galilee, we've talked a lot about it, but it's a, um, it's, it's a lake. It's 13 um, miles by eight miles, um, about the size of Washington, D.C. And um, I was actually watching some um, fun, I don't know, I don't think it's that, uh, not fun, but I was watching some YouTube videos about what a storm looks like in the Sea of Galilee this week. You can Google it. It's pretty fascinating. Um, but the, the waves are like four, four or five feet. I don't know what boat is like in this time, but you can imagine like the waves and the wind against you. You start to just feel like the tension of what they're going through. They're sent off from Jesus, and then they're just at it seven, eight, nine hours with the wind 
pushing against them. And I don't know if you, uh, if you were here last week, we um, discussed that the, fa- the fact that the disciples are already tired. And so Jesus sends them out two by two to do his work, to heal and to cast out demons and to preach. And they come back excited to share with their rabbi and their mentor, mentor Jesus, here's how it went. Here, here, here was like our experience. Here, here's what, what happened. And they're interrupted by crowds. And Jesus says, I know you're hungry, but I need you to help me feed the 5,000. And so we already saw them tired. Now they're up all night, exhausted, burnt out, and it's three in the morning. I have a six-month-old. Our house is often up at, the th- at three in the morning, and it's terrible. I am a fraction of myself at three in the morning. I know some of you can relate. And so, just put yourself in the disciples' shoes here for a second, just absolutely tanked. Like, no more, Jesus. I have nothing left to give. And verse 26 says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Jesus walking on the water. The um, original word in the Greek for walking is walking. Like, he was walking on the water. And they're scared to death. Yes, I'm freaked out too. Like someone's walking in the water, like you're like in and out of consciousness three in the morning. And what's important to pause here and to reflect on is that in the scriptures, when you and I think about an ocean or a lake, like summer's coming, so excited, get the tan on, get the beach on. You and I think about water, we think like rest and relaxation. Not the disciples, right? They, that, this is not their vibe. In fact, in the Bible, um, the waters, even in Genesis chapter 1, we don't have time to like unpack all of this, but the water is actually a place of chaos. The water is a place of danger. They would, they would live in, um, they don't live in the city, they live in a quiet community. It's very quiet. And so we get out to the water. It's chaotic. The waves are crashing. The wind is blowing um, throughout this region. And all of a sudden, they're like, this is powerful. Like, this is beyond my control. A couple years ago, I was out um, sailing um, with my wife's family. They're fancy. I'm not fancy, but we were out sailing. It was beautiful, incredible um, where we were. And so we're out on this, um, on our boat, and they're like, we want to go to this like island where we'll be the only people on the island. It's like an acre or two acres big. And I was like, great, sounds good. Um, I'm not necessarily a good swimmer. Like the doggy paddle is my primary method of swimming. <laughs> this is real. Um, and so I, when I was a kid, um, I had tubes put in my ear. On my left side, I had tubes put in my ear. And they're supposed to fall out on their own. Um, we got some doctors here. I, I don't know if this is any, uh, if this is legit, but they, um, they're supposed to fall out on their own, and mine never did. And so it left a permanent hole in my eardrum, so when I go swimming or get in the water, I actually need to wear, like, an earplug. And so I'm not thinking anything of it. We drop anchor, and we're gonna, they're like, we're going to swim to this island. And I'm like, okay, it's like 30, 40 feet. How, how hard could it be? You know, it's not that big of a deal. And so um, we grab the goggles and the snorkel. I got my earplug in, and uh, we jump in. And my wife is like swimming and then like swimming back to me because I'm like legit doggy paddling over. And it just hits me like we're in the ocean. This is terrifying. So I look down in my goggles and I can see the ocean floor. It's like, you know, 30, 35 feet deep. And I see like stuff swimming around and I start to panic. I'm like, oh, this is like this is completely out of my control. I suck in water through my snorkel. I start panicking more. I lose my earplug. And I'm like, I'm going to drown. Like, this is what my mind is, like, telling me. And so I just put my head down and just start, like, swimming as best I can to shore. I got to shore. My wife wife was like, are you okay? 
I, this adrenaline had like come through my body and my, my, um, my triceps were like, like feeling like they were about to give out. I was sore for three days. It was like a trauma response, like getting back to the water and I never want to go to the ocean again. <laughs> okay. And here, listen, look at this, Psalm 69, okay? Psalm 69, save me, oh God, for the waters have come up to my neck. <laughs> I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I wish I would have memorized the Bible better when I went down there. <laughs> Water in the Bible is perceived as something chaotic and out of our control. And this is actually what the, the disciples, they know this. Out on the water, they know the weight of what's underneath them. And so let's just pause right here. Let's, we can relate to this. Who in here could say, I'm tired, worn out, burning out, right? Who would say in here, life feels chaotic. I'm in the middle of a storm and feels out of control. Or like, have you ever heard, um, you're either going into a storm, you're coming out of the storm, or you're uh, in a storm, right? Like, it's, it's, there's one of three options when it comes to the storms of life. Or uh, think about it this way. Have you ever, um, the disciples, they push off into the water. They're rowing, rowing, rowing late into the night, early into the morning, and the winds are against them. You ever feel like that in your life where you're like, life is against me. Like there's nothing that I can do. Everything that I try just seems to be working against me, pushing back actively against the things that I want to do. Um, I think we're getting somewhere now, right? Like, we're getting somewhere now. What about finding yourself in a moment of need or in a trial and you actually feel like you're doing the right thing? Like the disciples are like, Jesus told us to go out and we are doing exactly what he said and he's nowhere to be found. Like eight, nine hours. You ever been like that in your life? You face a trial, you have a need, and the thing that you actually believe can help or save you is not there. Can you relate? And this is what Jesus says in response in Matthew chapter 14, verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I in the Greek is a, a phrase, it's ego am I, ego am I, and it simply means I am. Jesus says, take heart, I am. And clearly Jesus is drawing back to Old Testament references about a name for God in the Exodus narrative. Moses um, encounters God at the burning bush, and God um, wants to send Moses to Pharaoh so he can take the, the Israelite people um, out of Egypt. And Moses says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am remembered throughout all generations. I am. That's, that's who I am. And so Jesus, to the disciples, walking up on the water, is saying, I am. Like, I know who I am. And we've been going through Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel opens by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We read it, first chapter, it's telling us this is who God is. It's not, it's not like that for the disciples. It's still unfolding, right? They're trying to understand. They're journeying with Jesus, and they're saying, who are you? What does it look like to follow you? How do I know what to do? And here Jesus is saying, 
this is who I am. I'm the divine. That's who I am. I'm telling you who I am. I think it's tempting, I think it's tempting in our time to actually become a deist. Like, I actually think that is a, a, a path that many people will go in our time to believe that God uh, set our world in motion, that there's a higher power up there, um, but so much is unknowable, and just to give into that sort of vague spirituality. We don't really pray. We say we pray, but it's like it's just there, and just God set this in motion and let it spin because there's too many questions that we have that we don't feel like would have a valid enough answer, right? God is not in control of the day-to-day. He's not caring in the midst of our fear or in the midst of our storm, and the passage is actually going directly against that. He's saying Jesus actually is the I am, the, the, the comforter God, bringing recreation in the midst of decreation. And what does he have power over? He's literally on top of the water. He's like, it's under my feet. The most chaotic thing that you can think of, I'm on top of it. And here's the reality. Jesus doesn't cease to be good, and Jesus doesn't cease to be God when the storms of life come our way. He doesn't cease to be good or God when the storms of life come our way. Jesus is not anxious. Jesus is not anxious. You may read this and and think, take heart, I am, and be like, well, you know, I'm still sort of freaking out here, you know. Will comes to me as I'm, you know, freaking out and swimming, and he says, Russell, take heart, I am. I'm like, thanks, Will, go away, okay? Like, please go away. Like, there's nothing in me that's going to believe you because I'm about to drown. But if I am the divine, the creator of the universe says, I am standing on top of the water and the wave says, take courage. Maybe it's something to believe. Psalm 77 says this, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. That's what God did, and this is what Jesus does. Jesus is saying, you can have courage through anything in the present fear because I'm the creator God, more powerful than the sea, more powerful than the storms. And Jesus says, ego my, I am, and Peter responds. Peter responds. Verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. I just want to pause right there. I love how vivid, like, the the moment is. And as I read this over and over again this week, I thought, how vulnerable. Like, how vulnerable is faith to, to like, to to step out? And I actually, the the way that I was kind of thinking about it this week is, um, how much God honors our vulnerability. Like in this story, we see him step out and just, he's like, <laughs> Peter's crazy all the time. But w- what does he respond? He says, Lord, right? That's like the, the Greek word kurios, which means just like master, like you're the boss. And he's like, I'm, g- I'm gonna step out and I'm gonna follow you. And it's vulnerable. Having faith doesn't mean there's not gonna be any storms, right? And having faith doesn't mean you're not gonna worry or you won't make mistakes or the people around, around you won't fall into sickness or, or in, into hardship. But what faith gives you as you take steps is it gives you assurance that God is good 
that God can be trusted, that God is not going to forget you, that God is not anxious, that he's actually fully in control even when life feels out of control. And so Peter keeps going here, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. When he saw the wind, right, he's like stepping out. We were singing all these songs about fixing your eyes upon Jesus, and it's like exactly what Peter was doing, right? He was like looking, right? He's just looking right at Jesus, taking his next step on the water. And then it says, when he saw the wind, Peter had a faith in the presence of fear, walking to Jesus. And then he looked at his circumstances. And then Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. And I, I don't read this particularly like, um, oh, you of little faith. Like, where's your faith? Like, I don't read it that way. I sort of read it as like a childlike chiding. Oh, Peter, like, you were doing it. Like, you're my child. Like, you, you, you were almost there. You had it. And you took your eyes off me and you started sinking. Here's what it teaches us. Faith is a journey of highs and lows. I find myself a lot like Peter, saying things sort of prematurely thought out in my head, um, jumping to conclusions. And I was looking at this this week, and I thought, is this what Jesus is looking for? Like, he wants me to have that much faith? Because if it is, it's like, I'm doomed. Like, I'm sinking as soon as I step out of the boat, you know? But I think that we can relate um, to Peter in the sense, or maybe I should just say this for myself. I, I think I can relate to Peter in the sense that there are moments in life where faith is a journey of highs and lows, and I would say, man, I have faith, right? I acted upon what I believed. Prayer seems to, like, come naturally. I'm cognizant of others. I feel a sort of intimacy with God. And then, like, two weeks later, I'm like, ah, just stuck, glued to my circumstances, afraid, sinking, feeling weak, helpless, mad, angry at God. And I think that um, the vulnerability of this is that God is in both of those moments, Right? He doesn't cease to care about you when you are like looking at your circumstances. He reaches out and saves us in the midst of that. And so faith is simply a journey where the primary question is this. What is my next faithful step? What is my next faithful step? I know in here you got your like 10-year plan in line. Like I know you got like the vacation house planned out already. But like, what is the next faithful step? We talked about this this last week. We had our calling lab, the, the week two of it. Uh, amazing time. I can't wait to do it again. We're going to make it longer so we can get in all the information. But one of the things that I really was um, thinking about in that environment is helping people just realize not to map out so much of the future, but what is, what is the next faithful step? Because things seem to change in life so quickly, but rather each decision that we make is a vie for the person that we want to be in the future. And so we take little steps towards that. Last thing, verse 33, look at their response. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. What if um, in our fear, in our anxiety, in our thinking, right, we primarily think of these things as cognitive problems that we can solve with our head. Like even today, the danger is me giving you information and it never really like sinks in, it never really does anything. But what, what if um, the escape from our problems or our circumstances um, or even like when something like tragedy strikes is not more information, right? It's not watching more of the news to figure out what's going on. But what if the antidote for fear and anxiety is actually worship, right? To ascribe value to something and to work from there 
or um, the quote that I'm about to read you uses the phrase wonder and awe. Like what if wonder and awe and enchantment is actually better? Tim Keller said it better than anybody I've ever read it. So he says, miracles lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe and wonder. Jesus's miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. Instead, he used miraculous powers to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and raise the dead. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them for the restoration of the natural order. And so here's where we actually end today, is creation, decreation, and recreation, right? A, a, a renewal of the natural order, the way things were supposed to be, the way things were designed to be, and the way to respond to it. I love there's a confession there, right? The, the, the confession is, truly you are the son of God, but they have nothing left to do but to worship this person, to say you are of ultimate worth and value. And that's, that's why we do things like sing, because it's, it's actually the only way that we can get out of us the value that we think about who Jesus is. And so this morning, if you are exploring faith or you're skeptical, um, I'm glad you're here. And here's my question for you today. It would be, how do you frame the universe? <laughs> How do you make sense of all the tragedy in the world? How, how do you make sense of it? And truly, I'm not judging you. I'm, I'm actually saying, like, how do you make sense of it? Because you have to have a framework for what goes on in our world. How do you make sense of it? And if you're following Jesus, my question is both, what is your next faithful step? But how are you maturing? Right? How are you taking steps of growth? looking to Jesus and saying, I trust that you are who you say you are. I'm going to stop always evaluating my life based on the circumstances, but I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are, that you're both Lord and your Savior. Lord meaning you're the boss, and Savior meaning you have the power to save me. And that's what I hope as a church we would actually choose to put our faith and trust in. That that would be our choice, right? That we would say we follow Jesus. Do, do we have tensions in that? Do we sink? Sometimes we do. But ultimately, we say, Jesus, I'm looking to you, the author and perfecter of my faith, who can save me from anything. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for this big, big story that you have invited us into, where every week we just get to see little glimmers of reality, the people we want to be, um, the people you've called us to be. And, and the truth is, the tensions of our world that you're not blind to, and you can meet us in. And so I pray today that we would, um, that we would be looking to you, that we'd be questioning you, that we'd be asking you, where are you, God? Who are you? Are you this I am, the one who can hold all things together? And in the midst of it, I pray that we would be people that are taking the next faithful step. And Father, as we come to the table today, May we again be reminded of your good grace toward us, the things that you've done, the sacrifice of your son Jesus, who is a completer of this grand story. You don't just do miracles. You do miracles to point us to the fact that you would give your life for our good and wipe away our sin. And so, God, um, as we come to the table, may we be reminded that we are in need of you, our Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.